the Masaba sent a message to an enormous ship that was sailing through the Atlantic. This message, which was intended to serve as a warning, read, We saw much heavy pack ice and a great number of large icebergs and also field ice. The weather's good and clear. The ship that received this warning message from the Masaba was one of the first of its kind. It was a large vessel that would carry thousands of people across the Atlantic and never before experienced luxury. In hindsight, it's ironic that the ship that received this message from the Masaba was named the Titanic, because that ship was thought to be unsinkable. This warning message from the Masaba went unheeded, and at 11.40 p.m. on April 14, 1912, just two hours after the message was sent, the Titanic struck an iceberg, which led to the tragic deaths of more than 1,500 people. What we don't know are too many of the details which led to the captain and crew's decision-making process on that fateful spring evening in 1912. We can only speculate as to why the captain and crew ignored the warning. What we do know is that the Masaba saw an impending danger and felt it urgently necessary to warn this ship. Today, we'll begin our sermon series in Jude, and what we find in this short letter is another type of warning. Warning that is meant to signal to a group of people an imminent danger. And that danger is the danger of apostasy. In the upcoming weeks, we will unravel what apostasy means, and we'll also unravel Jude's warning to the early church. And what we'll find in this short letter is that we are also recipients of this warning from Jude. Like the captain and crew of the Titanic, and like the epistle's recipients, each of us has a choice. And the choice is whether to heed the warning or to ignore it. But the good news is, before Jude sounds the alarm bell, he provides some encouragement. Today we will learn about those encouraging words for the Christian. So let's read Jude, verses 1 and 2 this morning. This is God's timeless written word that he's kindly given to us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Please join me in praying. Father, we thank you for, for your word, for your spirit, and for your son. Thank you this morning that you've given us this gift of opening up your word and hearing it preached. 
pray that there would be people here who are hungry to hear this word. And more than that, I pray people would not leave the same way they came in. Father, only you can bring heart transformation, and that's what we pray for this morning. Pray that your spirit would be active, causing people to see just how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's sermon will be broken up into three parts. In each part, we're going to pose a question. And the first, first question will be, who was Jude? Second question will be, who was his audience? Who was he writing to? And the third and final question we'll ask of these two short verses is, who are we? First question, who was Jude? In our English translation of the, of the Bible, this epistle, an epistle writing being a common form of communication in the world of the early church, This epistle begins with the name Jude. The name Jude is translated from the Greek word Judas, which we translate Judas. Judas was a common name at the time this letter was written, and it might cause some of us to think of the same Judas who betrayed Jesus with a kiss, leading to Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. One commentator quipfully writes on the book of Jude, on the very threshold of a book written about apostasy appears a name which brings to mind a traitor who stands forever as the worst apostate the world has ever known. Our Jude is not the same Judas. We know this in part because the Gospel of Matthew records Judas the betrayer's death in Matthew 27, verse 5. Judas the betrayer could not have written this letter because he was dead at the time it would have been written. We also know this is not the same Judas because of what Jude refers to himself in verse 1 of this epistle. Jude gives himself two titles, the first being the servant of Jesus Christ, second one being the brother of James. What both of these titles do is they reveal something about Jude about his character, which will help us to understand who he is and why his audience should listen to his warning. The first title Jude ascribes to himself is that of the servant of Jesus Christ. Servant is a word translated from the Greek word doulos, and it can also be rendered as slave. Jude considers himself a slave or servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Jude's status as the Lord's slave important for us to consider when we're reading this letter? For one, in using this title of himself, he is acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ as his supreme authority. It's how he begins. He states, I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a supreme authority. When we hear the word slave or servant, we might be tempted to think of the antebellum south or the world um, before the American Civil War, our country, and the slave trade that existed back then. 
And in some regards, this would be fair because slaves, in any historical context, are purchased property. But something worth noting is that the relationship of a slave to their master during the time of Jude was slightly different. A slave of someone with regal authority and with power would act as a representative on behalf of their master. And this slave would be given a certain level of respect and authority. All, all based upon who their master was. When our Jude writes that he is a slave of Jesus Christ, what he is doing is appealing to the regal authority of his master. Another title that Jude gives himself in the greeting of this letter is his status as the brother of James. Being the brother of James is easy to overlook. When we're reading through, a lot of us might power through the greeting and want to get to the meat. Well, being the brother of James is important for us to think about. The James that Jude refers to is the same James that led the church in Jerusalem, and he's the same James that wrote the book of James. This James is the brother of Jesus. So what is implied here, as Jude calls himself the brother of James, is that he too is a brother of Jesus. But what Jude doesn't do is he doesn't explicitly include this in his title. What Jude doesn't write is Jude, comma, brother of Jesus. Why does he exclude this title? Well, Jude could be recalling what the Lord himself said of familial relationships or his relationship to his family in Mark 3, verses 31 through 34. And that passage reads, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, him being Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Submitting to the Lord as master was a priority for the disciples and the apostles. Thus, their epistles or their letters would have communicated this same theme of submission. In fact, Paul uses the same title of doulos in, in Romans 1.1. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude and Paul, they both consider the title of being a slave under the Lord's authority as their highest honor. And what Jude does is he elevates his status as servant of the Lord above his status as the Lord's brother. What mattered most to Jude was not the fact that Jesus was his brother. What mattered most to him was that Jesus was his Lord. Also, Jude knew that he would ha need to have some further credibility with his audience. 
This is important because those who would have heard this letter read aloud in a congregational setting, they would have wanted to know by whose authority was Jude writing to them. We talked about how Jude appealed to Jesus' regal authority. But what he also does is he garners further credibility from James as his brother. So who was Jude? He was a man writing from a posture of humility, submitted to the lordship of Christ. He also wrote as someone under the authority of Jesus, garnering further credibility as the brother of James. And what does authority and credibility provide Jude? Well, it gives him the necessary weight for what's coming next. And that's a warning, or an exhortation, if you will. And that's found in verse 3. And that's for the believers to contend for the faith. Or, we could also say, to stand firm. Now the question becomes, who was Jude exhorting or telling to stand firm? Leads to our second question. Who was Jude writing to? Well, Jude doesn't give us much to go on. If we read this whole letter, he doesn't really give us a lot of specific details as to the specific location of this church or whether it's a group of churches that he has in mind. And we also don't know if this group of believers were primarily Jewish or Gentile. But while specifics are not given as to the ethnic background or the geographic location of this church or churches, we do know that these are a people who are witnessing others in their midst live in a manner that was not Christ-like. That is what we do know. Reading ahead in verse 4, we see just how these ungodly people were living. I thought I could silence that. <laughs> it's okay, Pat. <laughs> While he's silencing the phone, I will read for us verse 4. And Pat, this is in no way reference to you, brother. <laughs> for certain people have crept in unnoticed. <laughs> I'll start over again. <laughs> Reading ahead in this epistle, specifically in verse 4, what we find is how these people were living. Verse 4 is, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's why I said this doesn't refer to you, Pat. <laughs> Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sounds very weighty, doesn't it? The wonderful thing about Jude's exhortation in this letter is that it comes with encouragement. He doesn't just rear back and sound the warning alarms without providing his audience with help. This encouragement is found in what Jude calls his audience. 
in verse 1. The descriptors he gives them. And those are, they're the called, they're the beloved, and they're the kept. The called, the beloved, and the kept. When we hear or read the word called, what it might do is conjure up the idea that God is sending out an invitation for people to respond to. This is not the type of call that Jude is referring to. By using the word called to address his audience, Jude is reminding believers in this specific body of people of their permanent identity as God's people. They're the called. You see, there is a very real danger lurking in their midst. There were those who had infiltrated this church or this body of believers and were contradicting the apostles' teaching by the way they lived their lives. Jude, ever the skillful shepherd, was on high alert. Jude was well aware of this activity. But his tactic in dealing with all of this wasn't just to point out the sinful lives of the wolves who were coming in amongst the sheep. No. His main tactic we find in this greeting. His main tactic is to remind these people of who they truly were. They're God's called people. And wrapped up in being part of God's called people is the reality that they are loved by their God. If you're using the ESV translation, you'll find in verse 1 that the translators use the phrase, Beloved in God the Father. Thomas Schreiner, who's a Bible scholar who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Jude, He points out that God's call and his love are always closely bound together in the scriptures. Recently, not too long ago, we were in the book of Hosea, and we learned that God's love and his call are a fixed reality upon his people. Chapter 11, verse 1 of Hosea reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God's love is always wrapped up into his call of his people. Some might be wondering now, doesn't God love everyone? Yes. I would reply with an emphatic yes. We can read John 3.16. Many of us have this verse memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. But what we must do when we're reading passages like Jude 1 and 2 is differentiate between the universal call of God and his effectual call. The universal call being God's call to all people to believe unto himself and his effectual call is to those who are actually or effectively given faith to believe and are saved. Let me tease this out a bit bit more. 
By effectual call, what I mean to say is that God's call is always supernatural, and it's always unilateral. Supernatural and unilateral. It's supernatural in the sense that God himself raises the spiritually dead to life by agency of his Holy Spirit and regenerates those who were once spiritually dead. And by unilateral, what I mean to say is that God's call is one-sided. You and I did not just wake up one morning and decide that we wanted to become Christians all of a sudden, out of nowhere. God himself is the one who gives saving faith to those who believe in him. This should leave us. If you're a Christian here, this should leave you and I with a sense of awe and wonder at the power and majesty of our God. That he would call in love sinners to himself in Jesus Christ. What a gift of mercy. That God would in his loving kindness save poor, weak, and wretched wretched sinners like ourselves. Only God can give the rebirth and cause the hearts of rebels to turn to him. That's what I mean by effectual call. Jude reminds those he writes to that they're not only called and loved, but they're also kept. God doesn't just, he doesn't just love and call his people, then leave them to fend for themselves in this life. He promises to keep us and sustain us through the hardships we will experience in this world. These believers, these Christians that Jude was addressing, they were witnessing others around them live in a way that didn't line up with being a believer. There was a rebellious nature to those who were professing to be Christians and they had no desire to submit to the apostles' teaching or to the Lord. And as we go further through this letter, we'll see how Jude calls out this wicked behavior. The fact remained that even as he calls out this behavior, these wicked people remained in their midst. You could only imagine that some of the believers might have been wondering what would become of their own faith. Would they too become shipwrecked and apostatize? Jude recognized that what these wearied souls needed to hear was that they were called and they're loved and they're kept for their God. Again, Schreiner's commentary is helpful for us when he writes, the ultimate reason believers will persevere against the inroads of intruders is the grace of God by which he set his love upon believers, called them to be his people, and pledged to preserve them until the end. Jude 
He perceptively sees the wickedness, but he moves first to encouragement. And that encouragement was to address the fundamental reality of what it means to be a Christian. And what that is, is you're called, you're loved, and you're kept. So who are we? Who are you? Who am I? It would have been very easy for me to just say, well, we are part of this immediate audience Jude was addressing. And it would be right to do so, because when we read the scriptures, we ultimately know God is addressing us through the pens of each author, whether it's an epistle, whether it's a prophecy in the Old Testament, or narrative like Genesis or Exodus. But what makes us different from Jude's immediate audience is probably the most obvious thing. Time. Time. Time separates us. There's little consensus among Bible scholars as to when Jude wrote this letter, but a date between somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D. would not be out of the question. That's 1,940 years. 1,940 years, or nearly 2,000 years. It's a lot of time, isn't it? And in that time span, a lot has changed. A lot has changed within the realm of Christianity and in the world around us. Specifically, within Christendom, there have been religious councils, such as the Nicene Council, which have convened over time to establish creeds and confessions that have helped to preserve and guard our faith and testimony as a church. And when I say church, I mean big C there. But suffice it to say, time is what makes us different from Jude's immediate audience. That's about it. What hasn't changed are our hearts. The hearts of men and women haven't changed over the last 2,000 years because believers are still tempted to question who they are at their core. And Jude's response is that the believer is called, loved, and kept by God for Jesus Christ. Additionally, throughout the history of the church, there have been men and women who have professed to be Christian. They might say the right things, but they've behaved and acted in a way that does not reflect a life that has been purchased by Jesus and brought under his authority. That's because apostasy and wickedness abound even today. And that's not, I'm not talking about outside the four walls of a church. I'm talking about within God's church. That is what makes Jude's warning in this letter and these 25 verses so relevant for us. There are still those who assume to be Christian yet deny Christ by the way they live. 
This is where it gets hard. There may be some, whether they're online listening or watching or in the auditorium listening to me preach, who might have a false sense of security and assume that they're Christian. You might have been someone who has grown up, you might have up in church, or have been attending for a matter of months, years, decades, perhaps. And you've built your life on the premise that you're all good. But you continue to live however you want to live and do whatever it is you want to do. Or in the jargon of today, you're doing you. You might hear the gospel preached and think that because you've said a prayer that when you were, when you were younger, that you no longer need to be reminded of this gospel. Or maybe you've created for yourself a laundry list of Christian-y things that you need to check off. Like attending church every so often. Maybe praying when you need help. Or praying for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner meals. Or maybe you even have some Christian friends and you think that's good enough for you. Jude says in this letter, that's not enough. What we will find as we continue to parse through this letter is that those who are truly saved will live in a way that reflects their salvation. Or negatively stated, those who are not saved cannot live the Christian life. This doesn't mean that the saved don't continue to sin. We will sin. Jude is saying, is that we'll persevere despite our sin because God's Spirit is active in us and His Spirit causes us to not just see our sin, not just repent of our sin, but to kill our sin. But that is a work of the Holy Spirit in the called, the loved, and the kept. The danger that faces the apostatizer, the one who no longer cares about the way they live, is that they have no desire to live a repentant life, a life that's submitted to Jesus. I realize that sounds pretty dire, but the stakes are dire. But there's good news. There's good news. If you're breathing right now, there's still time to turn to Jesus. If you've been truly called, you will be kept. If you think that right now your life doesn't align with what God wants for you, you're in a good place. You're in a really good place because that means the Spirit is doing something in your heart It's not too late to turn to him. It's an act of grace 
that he would show you where you're falling short. It's an act of sheer grace that the God of the universe would care so much for the estate of your soul that he would cause you to turn to Jesus. So do that. Turn to Jesus. Reach out to a Christian family member or a friend. Talk to someone here this morning. It's not too late to turn to Jesus. If you're here and you're a committed believer, Jude's warning should not cause us to fear. There will be those who seem to be standing firm for a short while who will fall away. It's hard for us. It should grieve us that people would turn away from Jesus. I'm sure if we took a poll in this room and asked those who've been serving the Lord for a few decades, all of you would testify to the fact that you know someone who once walked with the Lord who turned away from their Savior. It's heartbreaking that those who seem to pursue the Lord alongside of us no longer follow Him. But it is astounding that our God would call us and even love us. And I think what fails to register in a lot of our minds, is that he would even keep us. That he would dare to keep us. We tend to operate on this transactional level. Our economy is built on it. Capitalism is built on it. You have currency? You want a service or a product? Well, let's exchange. There's a transaction that takes place. And I believe what a lot of us do is we import that in our human relationships to our relationships with with other people. We tend to import this transaction type of relationship. It's almost as if somebody has something you want. Well, I'm going to go to that person. for wanting things now. My apologies beforehand if you work for this company, but that would be Amazon. Now, I'm not trying to knock Amazon. I love my Amazon Prime membership. I love receiving 
my order the next day, as they sometimes promise it to be delivered. We love things now. What we're not so good at is thinking about eternity. We don't consider how our desires, our thoughts, and actions will impact eternity. And if we were honest with ourselves, we we rarely daydream about what eternity will have in store for us. What Jude does in verse 1 is he tells us we're being kept for Jesus Christ. This isn't a temporary promise. It's not just temporary. This has eschatological significance, meaning this promise is meant to carry us through till the end. God's keeping us safe until the day we go to be with Jesus or the day he comes back for us. What this should do is give us a confidence in a world of uncertainty. Because as believers, we're not just called and loved, but we're being kept for Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth that is. Friends, we're being kept for the very day that the Lord will make all things new. We're not just kept from the eternal consequences of our sins, though we are. We're kept from that. But we're also kept for his coming kingdom. For the day in which we will enjoy everlasting communion with our king. That is what being kept is all about. What Jude does is he concludes this letter in verse 2 with the following blessing. And it reads, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He sets a pattern here for how believers should pray for one another. Our disposition, the way that we engage with one another, should always be to pray for and show others mercy, peace, and love. And what he even does is he one-ups that by saying it should be multiplied to one another. Can't tell you how many times I pray and fail to do simple math and multiply God's blessings upon his people. But we have access to do that. You can pray tomorrow morning for someone in this church and pray that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to them. This blessing, it's an outworking of who we are of being the called, the loved, and the kept, it's an outworking because it now shows us that our desire should be to multiply mercy, peace, and love toward others. Church, is it your desire for others to experience the same mercy, the same peace, and the same love that has been shown to you in the person of Jesus Christ? despite how they might treat you? Is it your desire to show others mercy when they've been merciless with you? Is it your desire to strive to make peace with a family member, friend, a schoolmate, or coworker, despite their 
incessant warring with you? Is it your desire to love those who show you no love back? That's what Jude is getting at here. May we be a people who constantly strive for this, to bless others by being merciful in our interactions, by praying peace over others, and by being loving regardless of the love we're shown in return. To sum up Jude's greeting, I don't know if you're a baseball fan here. Right now it's the playoffs. And baseball players, they load up their swing. Jude, he's loading up. He's loading up to hit a home run by warning a people against the dangers of apostasy. But in baseball, something has to occur before the load-up, and that's what Jude's doing. He's providing encouragement to this people. And that encouragement is the Christian's truest identity is that of one who is loved, called, and kept. And he even shows us how the called, loved, and kept are to pray and live. We should be those who pray constantly, blessing upon blessing on others. We should also be people who exhibit mercy and strive to be peacemakers and love others with the same love that our God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the simplicity of your word. Simple enough that a young child could know you by hearing it. I also thank you for its complexity. We could spend a lifetime reading and searching the scriptures. I thank you for this moment that we were able to share together hearing from Jude, verses 1 and 2. I pray that people would feel the weight of the warning that's coming. Lord, more than that, I pray we would feel the encouragement that comes in knowing that we are the called, the loved, and the kept. I thank you for the promise that you're keeping us for the day of Jesus Christ, that we can look ahead with confidence knowing that our King is coming, but that you, God, are preserving us for that day. Help us, Lord, to remember that as we go throughout our weeks and the days ahead. And ready us for next week as we continue our sermon series in Jude. In Jesus' name, amen.